Thank you. I come to you this evening as one whose head is firmly in the clouds. So uh, I'd like to turn your attention, please, to Nehemiah uh, chapter 1. It is our hope that over the next several weeks, we will be, a number of us will be able to work our way uh, through the book of Nehemiah with you. I uh, want to try and place this book in its uh, historical context, and the, the, the slide behind me, I hope, will help. Uh, we have um, a little location chart here. The red dot indicates uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter 1. That's where we're at uh, this evening. Uh, in the southwest of Iran, the city of Susa, uh, it was the winter capital of the Persian kings. Indeed, Queen Esther, uh, in previous years, she had lived in the self-same palace. Uh, but I want us to take uh, a step back to uh, the deportation of the Jews from Jerusalem, 597 uh, B.C., uh, this is the captivity of the southern kingdom now as a result of faithlessness and idolatry. Uh, God had taken his people uh, into uh, exile. It was a uh, disciplinary punishment, if you like. After 70 years, uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, uh, allowed those who wanted to to return home, and a group did so under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Uh, notice that between the return to uh, Jerusalem and Nehemiah, we have Haman's genocide plot foiled. Uh, I think it's helpful to see where all of these biblical stories fit into a timeline. And to recognize, too, that during this period of time, it was one of unrelenting opposition uh, for uh, the people of God, uh, peaked perhaps with uh, Haman's uh, genocide plot, which failed. Uh, but more of that opposition uh, later. Let's turn now to God's Word and read uh, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer, of your, the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. 
for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. That is the king. I was cupbearer to the king. One of the delights of grand parenting is you get to read lots of children's books. And in my fulfillment of that duty, I have learned that the driving ambition of Thomas the Tank is to be a really useful engine. Uh, however, along with many people today, he thinks of usefulness exclusively in terms of activity and performance. But I want to suggest to you that God's Word teaches that usefulness is primarily influenced by character, for it is character that shapes our Usefulness, And this, I hope we'll see, is true in the life of Nehemiah. And bearing that in mind, I want to approach the passage before us uh, under uh, three heads. First of all, looking at a revealing question. And then secondly, a devastating report. And thirdly, a passion-packed uh, response. Well, the first of these, a revealing question. In verse 2, Nehemiah questions a group of Jews who have returned from Jerusalem. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, that question is revealing, I believe, at a number of different levels. First, it tells us something about the questioner's heart allegiance. Now, Nehemiah was an important palace official. Verse 11, he was the king's cupbearer. And palace life would have been extremely attractive. 
It was certainly a place where you could easily lose your identity by yielding to the temptation to lead a blinkered life, to to blend into one's surrounding, to keep one's head down and to enjoy all of the benefits that palace life had to offer. But Nehemiah's heart hadn't been captured by palace life. His heart was elsewhere. I wonder if you're familiar with these lines. My heart's in the highlands, my heart is not here. My heart's in the highlands, a-chasing the deer, a-chasing the wild deer, and following the roe. My heart's in the highlands wherever I go. You see, secondary education wasn't wasted on me. But uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, who penned those words, did so in self-imposed exile on the island of Samoa. It was the state of his health that drove him halfway around the world, but he never lost sight of his true identity. I'm a Scot and proud of it. My heart's in the highlands. Well, he knew where he belonged. His heart was furled to Scotland. Well, Nehemiah too was passionate about his identity. He wasn't driven by nationalism, but by a love for God and God's people and a concern for God's glory and for God's city, for Jerusalem. Secondly, the question he asks uh, reveals a courageous heart. For his inquiry is actually bordering upon treason. Why do I say that? Well, the palace archives held a copy of a royal letter sent to Jerusalem years earlier, halting the reconstruction of both the temple and the city. You'll find a copy of the letter in Ezra 4, 18 following. And Jerusalem had been misrepresented by its opponents. And they had written to the king and said, look, uh, these folks in Jerusalem, they're a subversive lot. They're revolutionaries. If they get that wall built, then they're, they're going to revolt against your rule. And so the letter comes back, stop building. And here is the king's cupbearer. The man who has access to the wine that the king will drink and the food that he will eat, speaking, asking questions about Jerusalem, this iffy city. Uh, Why might he be doing that? All sorts of questions uh, could be asked concerning his loyalty uh, to the king, drawing suspicion on himself. So that just to ask this question required, I would submit a great deal of courage. Uh, I wonder at this point if Moses was perhaps his role model. You know, we read in Hebrews 11 that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Courageous Moses made a conscious decision, a 
firm life choice. The people of God are rather than palace life. And here is Nehemiah making a similar kind of choice. My heart allegiance is with uh, the people of God. Thirdly, the question reveals the depth of Nehemiah's heart concern. Now, before the communication revolution uh, took place, expatriates all over the world would invariably pump uh, newly arrived countrymen for information concerning the homeland. Well, Nehemiah was no different. He urgently, urgently wanted news of Jerusalem. But not in order to learn the state of the stock market. Nor was he primarily concerned with the condition of the walls. But rather what the walls represented. The city of God. The place where God's name was said to dwell. Concerned for the honor, the glory of God. And it was a a distracting concern. We find something similar, I think, in the New Testament. Paul uh, acknowledges uh, his burden distraction in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5. Uh, where we, we read, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent, Timothy, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. You will remember that uh, Paul was obliged to leave uh, the city God's people, God's work after a mere three weeks there. Uh, And in the interim, he's wondering what's happening to these people. What's happening to God's work? I'm distracted. Timothy, go and find out and, and bring me news. There is something of that kind of distraction, I would suggest, here with uh, Nehemiah. He desperately needed to know the condition of God's work, God's people. I wonder if I share that same concern. I wonder if you do. Uh, When Caroline White came home from Pakistan, I wonder how many of us uh, rushed up to ask, uh, tell us about God's people in Pakistan, tell us about God's work. We need to know. We're genuinely concerned. Now, I'm not asking the question to put you in a guilt trip, uh, nor do I want you all to stampede and rush towards Carolyn the next time she's in church. Uh, But I think it is a question worth asking for our concern, genuine concern for God's people and God's work, inasmuch as they reflect God's glory, will tell us a great deal about our own hearts. Where is your heart? In the Highlands? In Jerusalem? With God's people, God's work? 
Secondly, uh, we discover a, net, a devastating report is given to uh, Nehemiah in verse 3. Clearly, the people in Jerusalem had their backs to the wall, not literally, of course, because the wall was in ruins. Uh, the details of their trouble aren't filled out for us in verse 3, but I think some valid observations can be made. First, the Jews would have returned originally from exile with great expectations. It was for them like a second exodus. God had set them free. But on the return, and very soon after it, they faced very real opposition. Now, that shouldn't have come as a great surprise to them, for the work of God has never progressed or developed in a neutral setting, but always, always on a battlefield. And it's invariably encountered on two levels. There is a visible and physical opposition as well as an invisible and spiritual one. How did Paul put it? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Satan is going to do all in his power to frustrate the purposes of God. I'm sure many of Nehemiah's contemporaries would be able to remember the failed genocide plot of Haman. It was Haman that pioneered the final solution, wipe out the Jews. Had Haman succeeded in wiping out the Jews, no saviour could have been born of Abraham's line. We need to see the, the bigger picture here of all of this opposition, the tribulation that Israel faced. While tribulation is inevitable, both individuals and churches who are caught up in it need to ask, has it, has it dampened my passion for God and his work? Has the prospect of battling against the odds, fear of personal injury or verbal abuse had a paralyzing effect? It would appear to her shame that relentless opposition in Jerusalem over many years did have that effect. More of that later. Secondly, when God's people allow opposition and hardship to fill their horizon, then they quickly become disheartened and discouraged because they are comparing their own puny resources to that of the strength of the opposition. And do you know what they become blinded to? They are blinded to God's unshakable commitment to his work. It is unshakable. Hudson Taylor made the following astute observation. How many estimate difficulties in the light of their own resources and thus attempt little and fail in the little they attempt 
All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. Now, that was a truth that the inhabitants of Jerusalem desperately needed to recover. And it's a truth that in days to come, Nehemiah would enable them to recover. Third thing to say in this regard uh, concerns what the prophet Haggai uh, had to say. He ministered in Jerusalem during the reconstruction phase, and he expresses a complaint in Haggai 1 verse 4 through 9. He is complaining that these people have neglected God's house because they have allowed their time to be consumed with paneling their own houses, wooden panels. Uh, I think we'll change the ash paneling for uh, cherry. Uh, That's the flavor of the month. All of their time was devoted uh, to this. They've exchanged God's building program, really, for a DIY project. And instead of enthusiastic involvement in God's work, their time, energy, resources were being plowed into their homes. Now, years have clearly passed since Haggai first published his complaint, but the picture hasn't changed a great deal. Devastation brought discouragement, which caused a loss of inertia, bringing the work of God to a standstill. And so shame, we read, shame fell upon God's people. Now, the momentum of God's work will invariably grind to a halt when we allow the opposition to overwhelm us. Our passion will invariably be redirected. It it needs to find some outlet. And in some cases, it will be DIY at home, but it could be uh, our hobbies, our work, 101 other things. For the passion that was first given to God. Because we have come against pressure and opposition and hardship, that passion dissipates and reasserts itself when directed towards some other thing. I wonder if that rings bells in some of our hearts. Thirdly, a passion-packed response. The Jerusalem report did produce a passionate response in Nehemiah. First in verse 4 we read, he wept and mourned. Now, if mourning is an expression of helplessness and an acknowledgement of our need, then these tears describe Nehemiah's churned up emotions of immense magnitude. This is the city of God. This is a big thing. God's honor is at stake here. Some Christians of the British stiff, stiff upper lip school 
suppress such emotional outbursts and describe them as, well, it's a sign of weakness, is it not? There's Nehemiah blubbing away because he gets this distressing news. Seem to forget uh, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. They miss the pathos of his cry. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you weren't willing. Jesus is moved to the very depths of his being knowing the rejection of him was rolling out the welcome mat for God's destruction. Expressing passion is a legitimate response, not least when the spiritual well-being of others is at stake. I wonder if we ever express emotion in such an overt way when God's work and people are under attack. Have we ever shed tears for the persecuted church or mourned over the poor response to the gospel? And indeed, when Crawford was praying this morning and identifying uh, our immediate locality, I found myself asking, yes, we need to pray more for these people. Have we ever cried, Lord, for these people Nehemiah's response was not simply tear-shedding and mourning. He didn't simply wring his hands and say, oh, how awful it is for those poor people in Jerusalem. His passion, notice, drove him to action. He fasted and prayed. Now, there's little virtue in fasting per se, but if it carves out more time into our, from our schedules for prayer, then it's well and good. However, prayer is something that we do when all else fails. You know, when the protest march fails, when uh, the online petition fails, uh, when we try this and it fails, and we try that and it fails, well, well, I suppose we'd better pray now because everything else has failed. Notice, it's the very first thing that Nehemiah does. That's his action. And he engaged in prayer day and night for between a period of three and four months. That's the significance of the, of the little uh, time indicators that we have in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1. Between three and four months lapses between the time Nehemiah started praying and the time when he uh, asked the king uh, for uh, help. Nehemiah certainly wasn't a giver-upper. He gave himself to a period of burdened, agonizing, constant prayer. 
wonder if you've ever noticed before that the time that he spends in prayer is twice as long as it actually took them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Twice as long, at least. Uh, I wonder if that's got something uh, to say uh, to us. And during this time of prayer, uh, God's solution crystallized into wonderful simplicity. Now, the actual substance of Nehemiah's prayer is particularly revealing. And I want to touch on just three points uh, here this evening. First of all, notice he submits himself, verses 5 and 6, he submits himself to the majesty of God. When God's work seems to be at a standstill, we can allow that reality to generate a big negative moan. Isn't it terrible what's happening in God's work? Nehemiah's mourning didn't result in moaning. It resolved itself into heartfelt adoration. Here's a man who has learned the importance of perspective. Oh, things might be falling apart in Jerusalem, and they were. But his focus is upon a greater reality. His focus is upon the God of heaven, the one who reigns in majesty. Verse 5, the great and awesome God. A God who is not changed by mere crumbling circumstances. Nehemiah's mind is so saturated with God's greatness and faithfulness and redemptive love that the, the light and momentary afflictions facing God's people are put in their proper place. I wonder if that's our starting point in days of trouble. Interestingly, Calvin begins his sermon series on the book of Job by saying, there is nothing better than to be subject to the majesty of God. And it was doing that for the greater part that causes Job to stand out in the midst of all of his suffering. He subjected himself to the majesty of God. God's in charge. I realize that. Secondly, Nehemiah goes to the very heart of the problem in verse 6, saying, we have sinned. Oh, they have sinned, but it's, 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 it's us as well. Me, my father's house, we have sinned. When trouble befalls God's work, it's so easy, isn't it, to point the finger of blame elsewhere. Blame the king, blame the local authorities, blame our implacable enemies, blame Satan, find somebody to blame. It's easy to stand outside of the situation and apportion blame. 
Notice Nehemiah doesn't do that. He doesn't separate himself from the people and say, they've sinned, it's all their fault. These folks in Jerusalem, they're a bunch of losers. Lord, they're terrible, aren't they? He says, we've sinned. He doesn't distance himself from the sin of his people. He identifies himself with it in this corporate confession. We have sinned. When the London Times invited a number of individuals to reply to the theme, what's wrong with the world, the shortest and most perceptive reply came from G.K. Chesterton. A short letter, dear sir, I am. That's it. What's wrong with the world? Dear sir, I am. Wow. Wow. He was prepared to acknowledge his contribution rather than point the finger at others. It's easy, isn't it, to criticize other believers, church leaders, fellowships, denominations, national churches, from a safe distance. But you see, if we're Christians, we're part of the body of Christ. And if something has gone wrong with part of the body of Christ, something has gone wrong with us because we're part of the body of Christ. The buck doesn't stop out there. Stops in here. Lord, we have sinned. Now, you will notice that one particular sin is singled out in verse 7. We have not kept the commandments, statutes, and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Disobedience is seen as the source of the problem. You see, spiritual erosion doesn't come upon us because we wake up one morning and feel out of sorts or because we lack an extensive knowledge of biblical doctrine. You know, if only I knew more. Lying at the very root of spiritual erosion is a disobedient heart. Interestingly, in the history of spiritual awakenings, whenever God is poised to bless his people, a recurring element precedes that blessing, namely a heartfelt confession of disobedience, a mourning over the shame and the dishonor that his people's grievous disobedience has brought to his name. I don't think I've read of a history of a revival uh, where that has been omitted, this consciousness of having grieved God by my disobedience, not the guy in the other seat or across the church, my disobedience. Thirdly, in verse 8 following, Nehemiah references the Mosaic Covenant. And it's namely the blessings and curses it contained. Unfaithfulness and idolatry would result in exile. Well, that had happened. While a chastened and penitent people were promised restoration from exile. And 
And God's people had known that as well, had they not? Yes. And central to the promise of restoration, you'll notice, was the city of Jerusalem, verse 9. The place that God had chosen for his name to dwell. It's significant. It's key. For Jerusalem was key to the redemptive purposes of God, but it's presently lying in ruins. Instead of honoring God's name in its present ruined state, it was a reproach to it. It was not only the building site people who were the objects of ridicule, but God himself. (laughs) Look at Jerusalem, the city of God, it's a wreck. So much for all their boasting about having the great God. That's the picture. And implicit in the thrust of Nehemiah's prayer is an appeal to God's covenant faithfulness. If Jerusalem's inhabitants are your redeemed people, verse 10, and they are, then it is surely inconceivable that you would initiate the return to Jerusalem, as you have, only to abandon them to its ruins. You can't abandon this people that you are covenanted to, or this city that has a significant part to play in the future redemptive purposes of God. You can't do that without going back on your word, without denying yourself. And after all, Lord, are you not jealous for your namesake? Now, after three or four months of praying along these lines, and remember, prayer is not a monologue. It's a, it's a two-way communication with God. What I want to suggest is happening is that, that Nehemiah is being drawn into his own prayer. As he unburdens himself in prayer, God's plan becomes clearer and clearer to him. And he understood the part that he was to play in the process of Jerusalem's recovery. And so he begins to ask in verse 11. I don't think he prayed this on the first day he prayed. He begins to ask in verse 11, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man that is the king. Do you see what has happened? He's actually become part of the answer to his own burdened intercession. He gets it. Uh, here's, here's a good reason not to intercede too passionately. God might just point the finger and say, well, actually, I'm glad you're praying along these lines because you have a significant part to play in answering your own petition. I'm sure when Nehemiah filled out his job application to be cupbearer to the king, he'd absolutely no idea that God was maneuvering him into a crucial position. I wonder this evening, do you think that you are in your place of study in your workplace, 
neighborhood, accommodation, by accident or by design. It's one or the other. By accident or by design. In order to fulfill his purpose in Jerusalem, notice, God didn't choose an architect. Sorry, Crawford. God didn't choose an architect nor a structural engineer, but a man of proven character who was concerned for God's people, God's work, God's glory. A man who would persevere in prayer, a man who would be subject to the sovereign majesty of God, a man who would identify himself with the feelings of others, a man who would rest and plead God's covenant faithfulness. E.M. Bounds, who lived through one of America's great awakenings, uh, wrote these words, The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. Great words. God continues to look for men and women of proven character who can be useful in his service. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we confess that in our better moments, we find ourselves longing to be of use to you. Despite all of the inadequacies that we recognize in ourselves to be useful to you. And we pray that you would grant us a growing concern for your glory, a passionate concern for your people and for your work. We pray that you might make us men and women of prayer, men and women who will allow uh, your word, such as we have read this evening, to shape and to fashion us, to produce proven character that will delight your heart and advance your purpose. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.